This week, Three Sides of the Coin, another legend sits down with us, Night Bob, the incredible, amazing sound man who's been around for decades. And what band, what band does he describe as going over like bowling pins? <laughs> Funny interview, amazing stories, Night Bob. This is Three Sides of the Coin, talking all things KISS. I want to rock and roll all night. You're listening to Three Sides of the Coin. Everybody, welcome back to another episode of Three Sides of the Coin. You know, I'm giving up on trying to take keep track of who's in a show at what point of the show because... We have co-hosts dropping in and dropping out, it seems like, all the time, every week. So we're starting with Tommy and Mike. We end with Tommy and Mike. We got Mark somewhere in the middle. Figure it out, whatever you want. Mark's pretty yeah. quiet this week. No no, no, massive fanboys from Mark when he joined. Which I, I was kind of surprised by, because um, usually, you know, he's, especially if, 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 we would have started talking about like Deep Purple or, you know, something like that. Then I would have just assumed that he was going to lose his mind. And Rob Halford wants to buy Mark's <laughs> router. I tell you what, Metal Mark. You know, but uh, I don't know. And 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 speaking of Rob Halford and a new router, uh, it doesn't look like this week Mark got himself a new router yet. No, he did not. Because <laughs> he, he was running into internet problems again. We got so many great comments so far already. Um, Anything you want to share? Like, well, most of them are pretty much just straight ahead. Like, thank you so much for a really great chat with Rob. And the metal god is amazing. Um, you know, it, all that stuff. It, Jordan Davidson, amazing interview. I loved it. I would love if Priest played Wild Nights and Hot and Crazy Days live. So it, a lot of that type of stuff, just a lot of great fan interaction, but not one that was specific because they were all very similar. Yeah. And, and, and I want to give a, a big shout out to um, a couple media outlets that picked up the interview and yes. shared it. Thank you so much to Tim and Brave Words for sharing yep. this one. And thank you to Blabbermouth for sharing this one as well. Thank um, you guys, it, we it really mean, appreciate it, mean, it. It, it. Yeah, it means a lot to us when somebody picks up our little interviews and turns it into a story and shares it for everybody else. And you know, we're always sharing your, your posts when you guys share yep. our interviews. So thank you, it means a lot to us. We appreciate it. Um, all right, so this week's special guest, Another very cool guy, another true legend. Mm -hmm. Literally a legend. Night Bob. And some of you might be going, who? Who? Well, Google who is Night Bob and start reading a little bit about this guy. This is a legendary sound man. Legendary. He was on the top of the list for us, or at least for me to have on the show. He's and, and he shares stories that include the New York Dolls, Aerosmith, Rory Gallagher, REM, Ace Fraley, Steely Dan, Flip, Cheap Trick. Oh, and a little band called Kiss. Kiss. A little band called Kiss. It started, he saw Kiss at the Coventry and the Diplomat all the way back. Because mm -hmm. he had nothing to do that night. 
And and I love the fact you, you're going to roll because some of his comments are the brutal honesty that comes out of Bob's mouth when talking about these bands is just incredible. Pay it attention is. to the band he's talking about that he says went over like bowling pins. Dirty dudes. <laughs> there's there's a homework question. Yeah. See if you can guess before listening to this. Before listening to the interview with Night Bob, guess of all those bands I just rattled off, which one was he talking about when he said they went over like bowling pins? Bowling pin. Make a guess. That's a good one. All right. So, so uh, let, let it roll, Night Bob. Want to get your official Three Sides of the Coin logo and Shocker tee? Now you can. We ship worldwide. Get yours online at shop.threesidesofthecoin.com. Tommy, you're frozen. Sure, Tommy, you never get to do that, so I'll let Tommy do it. Tommy's frozen. This is all your fault. Tommy. Who's, who, hold on. Who's Ruder is the problem now? <laughs> Who's Ruder? <laughs> Tommy, are you using the Judas Priest Ruder there? No, I'm not. You were frozen. Okay, are we back? Now you're back. Okay. All right. So let's, I don't know what's going on. So I was just going to say you or Mark can introduce Bob. I'm I would recording. Like to. Go I ahead. Like to. Go ahead, okay. Tommy. All right. Hi, three sides of the coin listeners. Today we have a bucket list guest, one of my absolutely top guests that I've wanted to get on this show. Welcome everybody, Night Bob. For those of you that don't know him, he is a freaking legend in the rock and roll industry. And I don't want to give too much away because I want to talk about it and ask questions uh, so he can share his answers. But Night Bob's worked with The Dolls, Aerosmith, Kiss, Ace Fraley, Steely Dan, R.E.M. Um, got, I mean, the list just... And, and Mark, you're going to love this. Night Bob, correct me if I'm wrong. Weren't you the engineer who mixed the California Jam one? No. Oh, then Brent's wrong. I was wrong. on that show, but I didn't mix it. Okay. Because Brent said that you mixed it. So we're going to have to straighten Brent out. Well, so there, there, there you go, Tommy. You're, you're, you're batting a thousand right out of the, the gate here. Let me explain something, right? There okay. were three engineers on that show, right? And you know, like most people saw that show on TV. I did not do the broadcast mix. Okay. Right? So, you know, so I'm like that. I mean, like most people, it's, I hated the way that sounded. That's not true. I, yeah, I, was, I was just, a, that was very early in my career. That was, I think I did drums. You know, I mixed drums or something. I don't know. It doesn't matter. Okay. I, I didn't think that show sound. I mean, because I've got all the bootlegs with you know Sabbath and Black Oak and and uh, Purple. Oh, that stuff's great, man! I love that stuff. I like Black Sabbath and the Sun. That's how how long ago that was. <laughs> yep, that's a cool. Yeah, little early in the day. Yep, yep. Matter of fact, yeah. it's funny. Uh, I love the video there. They they pull up in their limousines, and it's nothing like it is. Today, you could pretty much just fucking walk back there and, like, nobody was, you know, 
mm-hmm. wasn't the dog and pony show that it is now. No, it was very loose. It was good loose, so. So, this yes, is, yes. so Bob, Bob sure. when, when did you get started in the music business? I've been playing in bands since I was like a little kid, right? And like back then you could actually make money playing in bands, playing, you know, playing dances and, and shit like that. So that, that goes back to, that's like in the 60s, mid, mid to late 60s. I was playing in bands while I was in high school and into college and all that kind of crap. And when I, became, I got a job in New York City through some friends of mine, right? running a rehearsal studio. They said, you can, you'd be good at this. You know, we need a guy like you and your band could rehearse, you know, when the studio was empty. So I took this job. This was, and this was the only, this was the place that everybody rehearsed in New York City. Everybody. I met, I'm, within a month, I met everybody from Lieber Krebs to Mahavishnu Orchestra to Humble Pie to Pete Frampton to Foghat to New York Dolls to Stories. All these bands rehearsed there. So that's how I got started at it. And tell us how you got your nickname. Oh, I was the night manager. And the, guy, the day guy was, day, was also called Bob. So if you called when our shifts overlapped, right, the girl who answered the phone, would, I, I need to speak to Bob about rehearsal. She would go, day Bob or night Bob. And since I did the evening shift, <laughs> the truth. Yeah. Since I did the evening shift, I got to wacky, wackier bands. So it, it tended to, it stuck. I tried to kill it off several times, you know, but uh, at one point it just, be, you know, it just kept me out of trouble too, because you, you can't get, have a arrest warrant uh, written out for Night Bob. You right. have to have, <laughs> a, you know, the other half of the name. I, I swear, it kept me out of jail. I was going to say, have you, you, have you had, that story have you had some rest, arrest warrants? Is that what you're saying? <laughs> Yeah, I mean, come on, man. This is like, we're talking about the cowboy years of like, you know, 72, 73, before there was a kiss, you know? I mean, and uh, you can, you know, well, you know, let's just say things are a lot different than they are now, you know? I mean, like, uh, let's just say that some behavior was not acceptable. Right. right. We'll leave it at that. Tell, can you, can you share with us um, what was it like to be in New York City in the early 70s and start working with people like um, the New York Dolls? What, tell us what New York was like back then musically and in your experiences. There weren't that many places to play. Really? Wayne. Okay. No, there wasn't. I mean, it's like, it, was, it was like there were really just like, you know, you had like the Academy of Music. At one point, you had the Fillmore East and, and places like that for big, for English touring bands, right? And the club thing, there was really, there was Maxis, Kansas City, right? Uh, and there was, uh, there was no CBGBs at that point. CBGBs doesn't come so far, uh, so farther down the line, you know? So where do you, you know, where do you go see smaller bands? You know, I mean, like, there weren't that many places to play. I mean, the Fillmore East, I mean, like, I saw the Dolls play the Fillmore East, right, in 72, you know, and uh, they were still having shows there. And, you know, there was the Cafe Go-Go, the Bitter End, there was uh, Kenny's Castaways, 
right? That uh, I mean, you'll, there's video that exists of the uh, Coventry out in Queens, yeah. right? That's that's where that was the music scene. It was Madison Square Garden, and you know, uh, and and like that. It was like most of the, you know, uh, most of the, the rock shows were English bands at that point, because the English bands were kind of ruling. You know, I mean, name me a name me a big a big American band from 1972, 73. Grand Funk Road. Grand Funk Railroad, right? You know, yeah. who else? You know, James Gang? Yeah. Hard, right? You can sit there and go like, oh yeah, yeah. Rod Stewart, Jethro Tull, the Rolling Stones, David Bowie, you know I mean? Those were your, your big touring acts, stuff like that. The, the American bands were really kind of on the downside. There was all this jazz shit going on. The fusion thing was really big. I mean, Mahavishnu Orchestra was a really big band at that point. Jeff Beck. You know, I mean, that was all Academy of Music or, or, or like some of the, the college venues. It was light as far as gigs go. But Bob, Bob, wouldn't you agree, though, that Grand Funk was right up there with the biggest of the big? They were big. They were big. You know, and they were... Uh, and because if I remember, I didn't humble pie open for them. Oh, yeah? Good. They were nice. They were, you know, I saw them play. I thought they were all right. You know, I mean, people, people I, I think that they, that they didn't get the kind of respect, see, because they were like early, they didn't get the kind of respect that they, they should have. You know, I mean, like you look back at their records now, and those are some good fucking records, you know, mm -hmm. and some good songwriting. They're a good performing band, right? There's a lot of these bands that fall through the cracks that people don't pay any attention to anymore. Young Rascals, right? You know, bands yeah. like that. It's a huge band, great band. What was it about Max's Kansas City? Oh, we talk about Kiss. Huh? What? You want to talk about Kiss? No, not at all. I hate Kiss. <laughs> <laughs> That's not true. That's not true. I know. I, know. I actually That's saw true. them very, very early on. And uh, we'll leave it at that. I saw them very, very early over at Coventry. Right? And I saw them play at the Diplomat, too. And... Wow. Um, well, so what were your thoughts when you saw that? They were pretty funny. I thought, you know, cartoon show, you know, I mean, it, I was like, what the heck is this? You know, I mean, like the doll, see, the thing with the dolls, the dolls had, had this scene going, right? They played at the Mercer Arts Center, which was a couple of blocks from, uh, from where the studio that I worked at. You could walk there, you know, you know, lock up the place, walk over there. Their shows are always really late at night, right? And... That's where the girls were, you know what I mean? They had a big, they attracted a lot of girls to gigs, right? So you could go and, and, and it was like, it was fun, you know? It was a good, it was a good, it was a good scene. It was, it was definitely like a wild party. It didn't go, they didn't start going on to like one, two o'clock at night. And uh, it was a good, you know, good fun scene. You know, it didn't matter. The fact that they were, they were pretty rough didn't matter it was a party you know i mean it was a, it was it wasn't about the music business it was like having about a good time so so bob what was the reason you went to see kiss were you just going because some friends were there did you know somebody yeah binky phillip um this guy binky phillips he was in a band called the planets who kind of predate kiss uh, a little bit right and they were on the um 
Okay, let's go to Coventry first. Coventry, uh, this band, a New York band called Teenage Lust, right? They were pals. They rehearsed at the studio, right? I had a car, which was pretty rare for people who lived in New York, right? So do the circuit, you know? I mean, like, oh, Teenage Lust is playing out of Coventry or whatever. We go out there and you get to know people. And since I was in the, uh, the business kind of thing, I mean, I had free reign to play. I could go there anytime I wanted. It was just a trip over the bridge, over the 59th Street Bridge, right? So we, we, you know, I think I saw them by accident at Coventry, really. You know, it just like went over, oh, I'm bored. Let's go over to Coventry. Because Coventry was a very interesting place, um, you know. And there would be band. You wanted to go out and see a band. What else was there to do, you know? I mean, like, let's, let's go Coventry, see what's playing. You know, see who's there. You can see in the paper. I would go over and see Teenage Lust. I saw Kiss play over there. And I saw the Dictators play over there, too. Dictators were around the same time. There's about a band that doesn't get the kind of respect they should get. You know what I mean? They were a really good band. Were they more punk? The Dictators? There was no punk. There was no punk at that point. We're talking 72, 73. You know, punk rock doesn't really, that's like a, a late 74, early 75, when that, and because of punk magazine and blah, blah, blah. They were just a rock band. You went and you saw bands. You know, there were like, you were lo there were local bands and there were pro bands. And it's like pro bands, it was like, you know, it was like you had to know somebody to get in. These local bands, you could just go see them, you know, and just walk in and see these bands. Hey, blah, what blah, was blah. The, when was the first time you saw the Stooges out there? Stooges, I saw them play at the uh, New York uh, World's Fair Pavilion with the MC5. Because and, that was and, really and, uh, David Peel on the Lower East Side. And two, two of the guys from David Peel on the Lower East Side later formed Teenage Lust, which a band was named after an MC5 song. So then... Were you surprised when Kiss started to take off? We didn't take off for quite some time. I mean, I, I when I saw they weren't taking off when they were playing at the, uh, you know, at the Diplomat. You know, I mean, you know, saying the Brats could sell the Brit, uh, the uh, Diplomat out instantly. You know, they were kind of like the a New York, a Brooklyn version of. Uh, uh, of like the faces or something. They had look, they had songs, they could buy. Kiss doesn't take off till till much later. I, mean, I had Kiss as an opening act for the New York Dolls in right. uh, seven, in like what, June '74 or something like that. You know, I yeah. had they were added on. They they played before Teenage Lust on New Year's Eve, 1973. I was doing the Stooges. It was like Teenage Lust, Stooges, Blue Oyster Cult. And when we got there, there was like, oh, they've added another bill. All right. And, and I go, another the bill. I go, who, who they yeah. And they go, it's this band, Kiss. I went, oh, I saw them. I saw them in Coventry. They dress up like monsters. Right. And, we, and it was like, that was the night Gene said his hair on fire. It was kind of cool. Right. And um, over and they went over like bowling pins, you know, and into another. It was pretty funny. <laughs> went over, went over that was like that, rolling yeah. pins. That's a classic line. <laughs> it was like, what was it, a 9 11 split or something like that? <laughs> one way they bumped one guy, he falls over. We're like, wow. This is, and they were big guys, you know what I mean? It's like all these, yeah. these rock guys. I mean, I don't know if you ever stood next to any of these British guys, but it's like 5'10 was tall. 
except for like someone like Mick Fleetwood, right? Yeah. They were pretty big they were, and they were beefy dudes, you know? So it's like, you know, uh, so like, listen, I don't know if you ever wore high platform shoes, but it's not that easy to navigate in those things, you know? And uh, yeah. easy to get knocked over. What do you, was what was the what was the buzz like for Kiss at that point in time when you were first seeing them? Was there much of a buzz? There was no buzz. There was no buzz. Not New York. New York is a, listen. Let me tell you, like New York, it's like they see everything. You know what I mean? It's like it's the big rock show gig. You know what I mean? And so that's where all the business was. New York, L.A. was like a big deal. So. All these fans, listen, you could go see a show for $3, $4, right? So you could see all of these shows. You'd see every band that came through. So it's a pretty much the audience was, was kind of picky, right? And it was like, they just, you know, the, it, it took a while. I mean, uh, believe it or not, it's like New York City was the last, um, last city in America to buy into Aerosmith, right? They hated Aerosmith. You know, Boston band. You know, okay. Boston versus New York, Yankees versus the Red Sox thing. You know, band from Boston. If you weren't Jay Giles, you know, you were fucked. You know, you know what I'm saying? Like mm-hmm. Jay Giles got over. They were a great band. Aerosmith back in 73 was not a great band. I went to see them at a place called uh, Banana Fish Garden uh, out in Brooklyn because I was doing stuff with the Dolls. And uh, Lee Berk- David Krebs said, you should go out and see this other band. Tell me what you think. Well, I went out there and I... I can't, uh, we, we stayed for a while. I thought they were terrible. I thought they were, I thought they were a doll's ripoff. You know, they had a lot of spandex and stuff, right? We were like, oh, these guys are no good. You know, so we drove back and I told Krebs they stunk, you know? And then it was like, like a year later, he says, go see them. They're, uh, they've got, they're playing in Central Park, right? And they've got like, um, you know, uh, and Rory Gallagher's opening. I was like, oh, I'll go see Rory Gallagher. He's really good, you know? Yeah. And, uh, they pulled the power on Rory Gallagher, and the audience went berserk. They hated it. Really? You know, it's like, it took a long time for them to get over. Yeah, no, but you don't pull the power on Rory Gallagher in New York City. You know, because you don't, you know? It's sort of like, what, no encore? That's when Kramer got hit by a bottle, and oh, it was hard. We were laughing our asses off. You know, it's like, oh, that's a big mistake. Tactical error, boys. <laughs> you know what I mean? It's like, it's like, oops. It was funny because I was talking to their road manager and uh, and one of their techs yesterday the other day because we were discussing the Central Park show, right? And it was like, oh, it was a union problem. It was like, <laughs> you guys just didn't get it. You know, it was like, you don't do that, you know, to Rory Gallagher in New York. Because, you know, come on, it's the blues. You know, it's uh, the, the boogie blues thing that, you know, Think of the kind of people, it was like the same kind of like the Grand Funk audience. You know, that was a really blue collar audience. I'm telling you, New York held the Boston thing against Aerosmith for a long time. They didn't get over in New York until like 76. They were still an opening act. I mixed them opening for Black Sabbath in, in like December of 75. And we got on the plane with our gear, flew to L.A. and headlined the forum and sold it out in L.A. That's what I mean. That New York, New York was the last. So it was a tough market. You know, sure like it. it was very tough. <laughs> Bob, did you work that uh, that uh, Central Park show with Aerosmith and and uh, Nugent? 
That was 75, I think. Cause I have that on, yeah, that was on 75. CD. That was, just, that was just before I started to work with them. That was uh, because <laughs> the company I was working for sent me. They go like, oh, you should go see this band. I go, who is it? They go, Aerosmith. They go, Pfft. you know, it's like, oh, really? <laughs> 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 I didn't like them. I mean, we did shows with 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 them with the with uh, with Martha Hoople and the Dolls, right? And I just thought, you know, come on, you know, it's uh, like the Dolls. At least they were, you know, I mean, they weren't, they, you know, they had a thing. You know, Aerosmith did, did was trying, but didn't really have that thing, right? Uh, and um, I remember, like, you know, doing the outdoor festival somewhere in Ohio with the dolls, right? And it was like, what's all that yelling about? And it was like, oh, it's that, that fucking singer from Aerosmith. He's making a big stink about his dressing room. Right? And we were like, get out. You know, it's so like, act your age. You know, it's like, what do you think? So, well, so, 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 Bob, so, Bob, you know, after yeah. your early opinions on Aerosmith, how did you end up working with them then? And, and, I, and I, I guess forced. why and why? You know, I was forced. I was forced by the company. The company I, I was working with, they sent me up to Boston, right, um, to demonstrate some gear. It was the same thing, you know. That's why they sent us to Central Park. I went, oh, that band. They go, yeah, we want you to go up and uh, and set up a monitor system and, and show them some gear. And I was actually had been doing rehearsals with Nazareth up in Canada. Right. And Nazareth had a big hit with uh, this flight tonight. And they were, you know, they're a Scottish band with a Scottish crew and they're really great. And they were having a, you know, I was having a good time. I flew back to New York because there was a break before the tour started. Right. And then the company says, like, oh, we need you, you and Dick to go up to Boston and show this stuff. The Aerosmith are like, oh, give me a break. Right. So I go up to do uh, these rehearsals. Right. First of all, it was like they were like three hours late, right, for rehearsal, right? Then they come in, they have this big fight, and they smash some shit up, right? And I was like, fuck this. Fuck this and fuck them, right? So I, I go, me and Dick go back to the hotel, and I go like, hey, I'm going, I'm, I'm going to just get on a plane and fly back to New York. He goes, really? You're going to leave me here by myself? And I'm like, yeah, these guys are a bunch of jerks, you know? So uh, they go, what should I tell them? And I said, you can tell them this. Go fuck yourself, right? <laughs> And, and I, don't, you know, I don't need this. This is true, right? And um, so the next day, he calls me up, and I go, "How'd it go?" He goes, "Yeah, it was all right." You know, I I got them to get some people to help me load the shit out. I go, "What about me not being there?" He goes, "The singer goes like nobody talks to me like that." And he goes, then he got really quiet, and he goes, "You must be really good if he talks to me like that." And then they went pursuing, you know, they said, we got to get this guy. And Krebs got, and David Krebs got involved in all this. And I didn't want to go. I wanted to go back to do Nazareth, man. They were like a, you know, a good, fun, a great band. They played, they had, you, know, you know, I wanted to go back to that. And then the company, you know, uh, the, the company I was working for, which was this, uh, a British company called International IES, International Entertainment Services, right? The, the New York head of uh, uh, says to me, he goes, if you don't do this, you'll never work in this business again, right? And I was like, wow, that's a pretty heavy threat. And at that point, I wanted to, I still wanted to play in bands and be a guitar player, right? And I was doing the sound thing because it was a job, you know, it was something to do. So I went out and on that, on that first Aerosmith uh, tour, I quit, I don't know, two, three times. Whenever it was convenient, 
Right. You know, like one night I was pushed all uh, pushed the wedges off the front of the uh, stage in, in Philadelphia onto uh, uh, a security guard. That was, that's it. I quit, got on a train, go home. Right. And every time I'd come back, they'd raise my, they'd, raised the money a little bit to get me to come back because I, I really didn't want to be there. And the thing was, I went out there, you know, so in a, with a feisty attitude, but then I saw them go, you know, they started, I started to realize that they're, that they'd become a really good band, a better band than, than I gave them credit for. Right. That there, there, there was, you know, I remember talking to, to Dick though, and it won't because he went out too and saying, and like, he's got, you know, you begin to see that outside of New York, they really had a base, a fan base going. Yeah. You know, that people, you know, you're really starting to see that, that these people, were, you know, because even when I was with the Dolls, the girls used to say, you know, you're really good at this, but there's this other band that you should go, you know, that, that's going to be really big. And I go, yeah, who's that? And they go, Aerosmith. I go, really? Right. I didn't get it. And then about halfway through that, you know, like towards the end of September, after after three weeks, I began to see that they had they had an audience going, right? And the dolls did the dolls the dolls thing is was was not as it really wasn't bringing the you know the average kids in. It was a well, little too. I want to ask you about that. So considering that New York embraced the dolls and, and they were very popular and people seemed to really like them. What do you think happened where they never broke the way, say like Aerosmith did? Too scary. The album cover, the first album cover was too weird, right? Okay. And it's not the kind of album cover you wanted to be seen carrying around in, in high school. You know what I mean? It was, they never looked like that, you know, and that, that was a tragic mistake on, uh, uh, you know, because they thought the whole world was like New York, and it wasn't. You know, you get out to you know to Ohio and stuff like that. It, it was really you know it wasn't you know it was too edgy, and it was also they you know the look hurt them in the long run. You know, because it, it was they I just it just didn't work for them. You know, and uh, people expected it to be you know people were more obsessed with David Bowie at that point. And they were kind of also rants. You know, it's interesting. You know, the interesting thing is I went back and I did them when they were reformed, right? And then they, they by that time, they, they become a legendary band. And they, you know, the same people who were, you know, afraid of them were loving them. You know, it's weird. It was, I had seen the same thing with the Stooges. Well, later on, you know, because of the press and, uh, and just the internet, that they had become, you know, people realized what cutting edge bands they were, you know. And at that at that same time, Aerosmith is playing dumb pop songs. You know, it's like yeah. that, you know what I mean? To, they went another route. You know, it's, it's what it is, forced by record companies, whatever, I don't know. Yeah, I know, and, that, and, and we've had that discussion. Keep asking, it's your show. Yeah, we've had that discussion a lot about how Aerosmith has changed, you know, because I don't like all that new stuff that they do. And you go to see them live and it's like, I want to hear Seasons of Wither. I don't want to hear, I don't want to lose a thing. Yeah, but I get it. people that are there want to hear that. So, you know, it is what it That's is. That's the problem. The problem is that 70% of the people who come to see, came to see them 
in the uh, in the from the like later eighties, uh, you know, on. That's what they they wanted that MTV sound. They could care less about you know those other songs. It's tragic. I, you know, it happens all the time to bands. You know, they get you know, the MTV thing was very you know really establishes you certain things. You know, I mean, like. I did my. I, I I stopped working for them uh, after um, what's it done with mirrors. They came out of rehab, and I was like the only one left from the seventies, right? And it was like this guy is gonna go. we're still friends. I'm still. Hey, Bob. Bob, can you? Well, Bob, I was I was going to ask you. Told me that great story about uh, punching Steve Tyler. Can you uh, can you share that with our audience? Uh, oh, you know what? I, you know, that's, that's not for public consumption. You know, I, I you know I I used to tell that story. Okay. And, All right, I was just yeah, let me explain. Wait, 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 wait. Let me explain something. Like from the beginning, I had a very adversarial relationship with him. Right, we're always fighting. You know about things. Right, and then. At one point, we buried the hatchet, right? So I stopped telling that story, you know, uh, because, uh, and we're pals now, you know, and it's like we, you know, and so I, I really don't talk to, tell that story that much anymore. Fair enough. Okay. Yeah, I hate him. Oh, that's fine. I was just curious. I hate him because he called me a liar. Told it anyway. It's the short version. Yeah, I hit him. He called me a liar, so I hit him. Bob, Bob, what what was it like being on the road with Aerosmith back then? Was it as crazy as what everybody was led to believe? No. And the same thing with the dolls. It's not as as people have this. You know, the urban legend is that these bands were drug soaked, right? And like. If they weren't, because it takes money to have drugs, right? And when you're out there, like the dolls, they didn't play, you know, they, they'd go out and it was like, you really had to worry, you know, it was like, we didn't get per diem, you know, expense money. You were allowed to, to sign like $15 a day to your hotel room, right? That backfired because like, I'm like you know, it was like they, they would all get together and sign everything for the tour managers, you know? Right, so the tour manager go to check out, and there'd be like four hundred dollars in bar bills signed to his room. You know, they they were they they knew how they knew, they had they had this hustle thing. Yeah, I suppose you. They, they were street guys. They had to work it, but yeah, you know, I mean, like it. I don't want to let you know. Uh, I mean, I told some people this. I go, it wasn't really, especially in 75. The problem with all bands is when they become successful, right? You know, I used to say, it's like this. You know, the, the bands would get, you know, a band would get together and everybody put in some money and they'd buy an, a, a small an amount of drugs, right? And they'd split, they'd sit around together and they'd do it, right? Then all of a sudden, people start getting che big checks. I mean, I'm talking about checks for 80 grand and shit like that, you know? And all of a sudden... You don't, you're not getting together with your buddies. Why should I share with them? You know, when you can just like, you know, you can buy a shoebox full rather than, you know, uh, a little bit, right? And that's when the isolation starts. And certain people aren't making as much money as other people. 
And that's where fragments fans, you know, and that's when the trouble starts. The trouble starts when you have hit records and all of a sudden you got to put, you have to have another hit record, right? And it's sort of like a very wise man once, uh, you know, he goes, said to me, he goes, it's hard to sing the blues when you're rich. You know, when you don't have, you know, everything you ever wanted, you have. You know, you have that car. You have that high-end girlfriend. You know, you have a nice house. You have more money than you ever had in your life, right? Then all of a sudden, you become removed from your audience, you know, and you just, you know, it's, you, it's hard to sing the blues when you're a millionaire. And that's why I think music changes for different bands as well, because people that are in their 50s oh, yeah. couldn't write what they used to write when they were in their 20s. Well, that's, uh, that's uh, you can't go back. You know what I mean? You can't, you know, when you're, you know, you can't go back to that place you were when you were 21, 22. It's hard to go back there. You know, that's true of every, all bands. You know, at one point, it becomes a business and you, you know, you want, you don't, you want the business to continue. Right. And all of a sudden that edgy stuff that didn't sell does, isn't as, as it isn't as exciting to you, you know, it happened to all bands. You can just trace the arc. Some of them, you know, it's very rare for them to be able to keep it together when he's bending on, unless you, you know, for a band, I'm saying bands, right. Yeah. Other acts that are are like, you know, benevolent dictatorships where there's one guy who's got the vision and he, you know, he makes all the decisions. That's one thing, right? Democracy is the end of bands. Right. Really. Not everyone can, not everyone stupid can. people in some bands. Well, and I, I'm sure you've seen more than your fair share of, you know, bass players or different, different musicians who are part of the unit, but start to think that they are the centerpiece when in reality they're not. <laughs> what do you mean? You mean the drummer says he has a song he yes. wants the band to do? Yeah, but uh, <laughs> so when did you start working with Kiss? Uh, let's see. Let's go to uh, not till the eighties, not till like eighty-eight. Uh, I had them as an opening act. How did it come up? Very easy. Yeah. I was working for Ted Nugent. Ted Nugent was opening for Kiss on Crazy Nights, and he was blowing them away every night. No matter what you think about Ted Nugent now and his his you know his his current persona for the like you know the last ten or fifteen since the nineties or whatever, it's like he could go out there and in the Midwest he was unbeatable, right? Oh. He knew how to do it. He'd go out there. He he always gave a hundred and ten percent, and he knew how to work a crowd. It was very. Uh, I could easily say that he was the most one of the most professional musicians I ever worked, you know, because they, you know, the, he would get the, uh, the, the reviews, right? And it would say, Nugent blows away Kiss. So we'd have like 25 copies and he put them all around the backstage area, right? And, uh, <laughs> and <laughs> so at one point, uh, Gene comes to me and he goes like, I think you've seen these reviews, haven't you? I go, yeah, I've seen them. He goes like, well, we, we think that you're the secret weapon. I go, oh, I'm the secret weapon, right? And uh, he goes like, yeah, we, you know, it's, you're, you're what makes him good. I'm like, well, I don't know about that. He goes, that and we, you know, uh, 
you know, so uh, could you try and, you know, uh, you know, help us out? And I'm like, no, I'm not, you're not paying my salary. I'm not going to help you out. Right. So, uh, and a friend of mine was mixing them. Right. And then the, so at the end of crate with the American, uh, after Japan, they came back and I got a phone call. Um, from Gene, you know, let's talk, we really could use your help. We're going to do this tour in, uh, in England. We're on this Monsters of Rock thing. We're in between uh, David Lee Roth and Iron Maiden, and we could use the secret word. I really didn't want to do it, but this other tour that I had flamed out. And so, uh, so I took it and I charged them a, a good amount of money. And um, I thought they were good. You know, and they, they were really, in England, they, they were really working hard to uh, regain, you know, they really wanted to rebuild themselves in Europe. And this is the Eric Carr, uh, Bruce Kulik version. Right. I thought they were good. They were, it's like you work on weekends, you know. I mean, you go, you do these two big outdoor shows, then you'd have five days off, and it was fine, you know. And then when we went out and did, uh, uh, you know, uh, an arena, or some arena stuff for like six weeks, not a good. I, I had a good time, you know. I mean, like, like uh, they, uh, I thought that they played well, you know. I mean, you can go look; it's on YouTube, like everything else in the universe, you know. I mean, like the, some of the shows they did, and they're. They were dressed fucked up, but I mean, like that. <laughs> but they, uh, they were, <laughs> you know, it was. <laughs> Look at the clothes. Just, I think there's, you know, the video from, uh, you know, uh, like the body. I used to call it the body glove era. You know, I was just yep. like, you yep. know, and uh, but uh, it was, you know, they were they were good. And uh, then after I I did a. Uh, <laughs> um, I did Stanley's solo tour. At one, I guess at one point I was like the, you know, the Kiss guy, right? The guy. Because I actually, really, I only did, check this out. I did two shows at the Ritz with Kiss, right? And then mm -hmm. a show in Galveston when, you know, a Forever became a hit, right? And a, show, and a show out in L.A., which were both radio promo shows, right? And that was it. That was the only Kiss shows I ever did in America. I used to tell people I had successfully avoided Kiss you know, for, for a decade. And they go, well, why'd you do it? I said, it was in Europe and nobody would know, <laughs> you know, because I was kind of, you know, 80s, I, I just left Aerosmith and I just done the full Fraley's Comet tour, you know, and I, I thought for me personally, Kiss was a step back, but, you know, you tend to, after a while, you begin to go, it's like, they're working really hard. You know, they were, they were, they were, you know, really stepping up to play. It wasn't like they were cruising through like, you know, and they were in a tough spot in between David Lee Roth and Iron Maiden, I got to tell you, in yeah. Europe. You know, I mean, and they, so I did that. Then I did Stanley's solo tour. Then I did those two promo gigs, and that was the end of me and Kiss. Cool. But you were working with Ace by that point. You did Fraley's Comet, correct? I did a year with Fraley's Comet, and it was at one point, it was like every two weeks there'd be a new manager and a new accountant. Like, <laughs> you know, Bill O'Coin came back for a couple of weeks, you know, it was, it was nuts, you know, and then it, it's like when you get, when the bus driver kicks you off the bus, 
and says, take your luggage, because, uh, you know, because he hadn't been paid, right? It was like, it started to get like this dodgy, you know, you, you don't, you want to be, you know, it's like, that's it. No, I was done. I went back to Nugent because Nugent was super pro, right? You were never, you know, you were always, everything was like super pro, a great team, blah, 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 a good manager, you know, and I went back to Nugent. And then went out and did, you know, did the kiss, you know, uh, the kiss stuff. And then from that point on, yeah, I did. Let me tell you, I wish there were more tapes uh, of uh, the Paul Stanley solo tour. Cause that's, that was really good. That was with Bob Kulik, Eric Singer, Gary yep. uh, playing keyboards. That was a good. And band and crew on the same bus. Nice. That does that was, happen. That was fun. That was very interesting. Let me tell you, you know, being on a bus with Paul Stanley is very interesting. He's very, very sharp guy. Very, really good memory too. Let me tell you, he could talk about shows that he, he could read. He could tell you the set list, the humble pie at the Fillmore in 1970. You know, I was pretty impressed. Pretty good too. Well, we've been told that he's got quite the knowledge of even just music stuff on the radio and all of that type of stuff. He follows all that. Oh yeah, I mean he did. He's, he did the work, man. I, I got you know. You gotta say, you know. I mean, I want you wind up. You know, you spend time with these fans. You do wind up, you know, respecting them. To a, uh, you know, I respect those guys. I have no axe to grind with them. I, but you know, I have very little axe to grind with most of the bands that I work with. Worked with a couple of them. I kind of regret doing, but uh, it's the way it goes, you know. The Bradley's Comet thing was a lot of fun. Did you ever chat with the Kiss guys about those very early shows that you remember seeing? Yeah. I mean, like we, you know, I, I you know, it come up in Coventry. You did? You know, they're like, yeah, so you What'd you think? I go, not much. You know, I go, it's like, it's the way, you know, one thing is always to try and be truthful because it doesn't, you know, it, you know, blunt honesty, yeah. uh, you know, why not, you know, tell, tell the truth, you know, and it's like, it didn't work for me. Right. They used to tell, I used to grade Aerosmith. I'm sure that's why that stopped me from working. I used to come in and they go, what do you say? What'd you think? And I go like C minus and they get rid of the arguing would start. Yeah. <laughs> If you see a lot of bands, you know, and you, you uh, from out front, you know, from my perspective, you know, because like what they think is going on and what is actually going on are two different things because they're in, in a, you know, it, it sounds way different up there. They can only see the first four rows, right? yeah. you know, but um, yeah, you know, it's like, I mean, like Simmons, Gene came down to see Fraley play in L.A., which was interesting before the you know, and Fraley was, you know, he, I mean, Fraley's been sober now for like 12, 13 years. He played, it's great. You know, I mean, he's, he's really, really on it. That's why, I mean, I do, I still do it. I've been doing him for like, you know, mixing shows for him since, I don't know, 2007. Right. And I like doing it. I, I wish I was doing a Fraley show next week. It was good. You know, it's a, the band's great. You know, I mean, you can, you can sit, you can sit there for an hour talking about, you know, which version of the band is your favorite, you know, the, you know, 
with Richie or, you know, and Chris Wise and Scott playing drums. Or I, I like the new the version, you know, uh, that, that he has now with the, those guys, the guys from Nashville, myself, personally, because they're fans, right? They love the music. I can't, you can't say that about, uh, you know, the... Uh, uh, some of the other guys who, I mean, I'm, I'm not demeaning them, but I mean, they're professional players and all that, you know, but it's a different mentality, you know? Uh, I mean, those I mean, like the guys, uh, you know, Ryan and Phil and uh, Jeremy, I mean, like they can play, they love, you know, they know all the deep cuts. They play, they can play, you know what I mean? They can play all that stuff and they, and they, they like playing, you know, they'll, you know, well, let's play this. You want to play it like like a live one, a live two, a live three, like the record, like the bootleg, whatever. And they can do all that, you know, which is, you know, it's a much, I like it better, you know. I mean, it, it's like, it is what it is, you know. I mean, like I've seen all these other versions, you know, and there's other, you know, the fans, they, they you know, it's that's they don't understand, you know. It's like this, there's business is business, you know, and the old band had gotten, you know, that band – the band that did like from 07 to uh, I don't know what, a couple of years ago. Yeah. I mean, they were, it was, they were sleepwalking through the shows. They were, you know I mean? It's like Richie does the Richie thing. God bless Richie. Richie is, Richie is like, Richie should have been, he should have been Johnny Saunders in the refund yeah. New York Dolls. Yeah. You know what I mean? Oh, look, everybody's got really quiet. Well, and sorry. I, we didn't want to interrupt you. Uh, so, hey, is this thing the, working? Yeah, it looks good. One of the things I was, I felt what? from a fan's perspective what? is Jeremy, Phil, and Ryan bring. Hello. Hello, did we lose you? We, we dropping you. out. We can hear you. We can see okay. you. Uh, I, I felt that the new band with Ryan. Yeah, Jeremy, but I can't hear you. Is uh, that my fault? I don't know. Maybe your internet uh, connection. I got a really good internet connection. I can see you guys one, but it's just the audio drops in and out. Test? Ask a question. Yeah. Well, if you can hear me. Yes. What? We can okay. hear you. We can hear you. Good. Yes. So it seems like Ryan, Ryan and Jeremy and, and Philip bring this thing to the the music now with ace it just seems really organized and streamlined for the lack of a better term i know that's not musical but it just i don't know i thought that the the shows have been more exciting for my yeah, i can see that you know you know it is it, it's something you know you can you know you can feel that they like what they're doing and they're happy to be there you know I mean, those other guys, you know, I mean, it's like, I don't want to turn this into like a, uh, you know, I mean, believe me, they did, they did good shows, you know, but at one point though, there was, you know, I don't know, not, nobody hung out, you know what I mean? It was like, fairly doesn't hang out, right? And I think those guys, you know, let's see how long, let's see how long they last. Yeah. Bob, how did how did you end up working with Ace? Did were you and him in touch through the seventies and eighties? How no. did you end on his radar? Uh, I'm good at what I do, you know. And so they needed someone to do it, and someone called me up, and I went, "Yeah, I'll do that." You know, I could. I'll say this thing about about Ace, really, right? 
This is Ace Fraley doing the beer when he was like to drink beer, right? I did a bus ride with him from like Buffalo to New York City, right? And you know that old adage that I laughed so hard my sides hurt? It's the only time in my life. Well, he just kept cracking jokes for like the entire ride. And me and the lighting designer, we just were laughing our asses off, you know, because, you know, uh, and like I've been talking about six hours and nonstop, you know, it's like the ultimate Henny Youngman, you know, it's just like one after another, just like we we're like, ah, then he got sober and that part of him went away. You know, he would come to me and say, like, you got a good joke? I'm like, you kept me laughing for eight hours and you're gonna you're asking me for a joke and he goes to that guy he goes that part of me went away which was kind of sad you know but uh you know he was he was really good at the uh at sleight of hand magic too i haven't asked him to do any of that but i mean like we were out with uh uh who was it ynt and faster pussycat right uh, uh comic, right and he had a he did the, he did a couple of sleight of hand things, right? And we and me and, and Brent from Pastor Pussycat, we were we had to figure out how we did it. Had to do it levitating a Jack Daniels bomb. Right? <laughs> and it was a bar trick. He was really good at bar tricks, let me tell you. You know, and uh, but we finally it took an entire summer, but we figured it out. Finally figured it out. Yeah. Um, so You've worked with so many different artists and bands over the years. Are there any that for you were some of your favorites? Like, did you ever, have you ever worked with, say, Paul McCartney? Or were there certain ones where you were like, oh my God, I can't believe I'm working with so and so? Paul Rogers. Paul Rogers. Okay. Paul Rogers. Paul Rogers. Wait, this is, this is interesting because it really, it's, it's kind of off the radar. He made a, he made a record. Uh, where uh, there were all these Memphis soul songs that were highly influential to him, right? So uh, a producer came to him and he goes, how would you like to make, cut, recut those songs with the guys who played on the, on the original record? And so he jumped on it, went down, they recorded with the guys from Royal Studios, to, you know, who played on all those, you know, like Al Green songs and, and you know, and we did a tour. We did we did a New York a New York show, two, a New York show, an LA show, uh, a thing for PBS, and then we did Royal Albert Hall in England, and um, uh, after with Jules Holland, right? And it was stunning, man. I mean, it was like like one of the top ten shows I've ever done because it was you know the emotional content, you know. I'm telling you, so. Some of those REM shows I did when they were just breaking, there's a certain point in bands, right, where all of a sudden things start to click for them, right? When I was doing, I went right from, check this out, 86, right? Aerosmith flames out. I jumped right from air because of drug issues, right? Uh, I jump right to Nugent. I do Nugent, right? I get, and, uh, <laughs> and from, from Nugent to REM, right? REM gig I got because the rigor for Aerosmith had a, had one of the first Macintosh amps, right? And when they pulled that tour, the rigor came and says, listen, you know, I, uh, 
there's these things, there's this thing called the internet, and they have this thing called bulletin boards. This is 1986, right? He goes, like, should I put our, the crew list up and say that we're all looking for work on this music bulletin board, right? And I was the only one who got uh, a phone call. I got a phone call from the uh, tour manager for REM. And I had to answer all these questions, and I guess I won the prize because I went right from Nugent. Serious, I did a Nugent show the next morning. I flew to uh, Birmingham, Alabama to do production rehearsals with REM. And the amusing thing about it is, like, uh, when I accepted the gig, I thought they were a different band than I thought. I thought they were Let's Active because I was familiar with Let's Active because I do have a side business of selling vintage guitars, right? And okay. I sold these guys and less active, you know, a bunch of uh, bunch of instruments. And they said, yeah, they're banned from the, you know, they're alternative rock from the South. I thought that was them. So I took the gig, right? Now I said, send me a, you know, send me a tape. Because back then they'd send you a cassette, right? There was no CD, right? You get a cassette, and a, you know, FedEx a cassette to your hotel. And I listened to it. I was like, oh, this is not the band I thought, you know, and I listened to it. And I go, there was, some, you know, something happening here. And they were they were way edgy back then, man. It was really great. It was like they, they were like the set list was meaningless, right? And uh, right. there were some good, good guys, man. So did you, I, when, you I, 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 when you were mixing some of those shows? Did you were you just standing back there going, okay, these guys are gonna gonna really roll and and get big? No, not you know because there's there's so many other factors. You know, you know when things are starting to happen, right? Because it's sort of like you see that you're going like, you know, we're playing some good-sized places here. This is, I thought I was going to, you know, I thought this band was like going to be a thousand-cap club band, right? Next thing you know, you're playing, you know, big places, you know, bigger places. Like the, in Chicago, I was like, whoa, this is, you know, outdoor gig in Birmingham, Alabama with like, 12, 13,000 people, you know, I was like, whoa, there's something going, there's something going on, you know, so, and it was, uh, unfortunately, it was funny, because uh, it's like, uh, let's see, that was 1986, and today is, was, is actually the day, my last show with REM. Yeah, you've been posting on Facebook, which I think is really kind of fun. For those of you that don't follow Night Bob, he'll post today in 1977, I was with Aerosmith. And that's kind of fun to see, you know. It was kind of fun. And the funny thing was, is that I was, when I was doing that until recently, I was in South Carolina and I was taking like this big sabbatical because of this COVID-19 thing. I wanted to get out of New York and I've been down there for six months, right? So I didn't bring anything with me. I didn't bring a guitar. I brought the laptop and that was about it, right? I started doing this thing because we started, uh, I was, you know, we have a lot of free time. Nobody's working, right? It was like, right. where, where were you on this day, right? And, like, there's a lot of bands that, like, it's hard to find, you know, some of these bands, like, lists of gigs, right? And it was, like, really lucky that, like, Steely Dan, super detailed, you know? I mean, I, I know exactly where I was and who I was for my entire, you know, 12-year career with Steely Dan, right? And um, uh, Kiss is the same way, and R.E.M.'s the same way, but some of this other stuff, Aerosmith is, like, hard to find the exact, you know, bunch of dates and things like that. But, um, I suppose everyone runs it a little bit differently. Um, is yeah, there anyone else? What? Go ahead, I'm sorry. I was just going to say, is there anybody else that you have not worked with that you would like to work with? Cheap trick. 
I always wanted to mix cheap trick, right? The funny thing is that I got hired once or twice and some, some, you know, catastrophic problem happened. So I, cause uh, check this out. So the, in uh, the summer of 97, I'm mixing flip opening for cheap trick. Right. And, and not to pat myself on the back, but I'm really good at what I do, especially in guitar bands. Right. So I was like, I was doing a pretty good job of being better, of having flip sound better than cheap trick. Right. Yeah. And it's got to be a running joke, you know, uh, with them. And after that, that tour, right. They hired me. Right. Like, we want you to be the front house production manager. And I was like, this is a dream come true for me. Right. Then the record company uh, fell apart. Red Ants. Right, because you were supposed to go and do, do uh, in, you know, be in, um, do a tour of England with the Wild Hearts as, uh, as, the, uh, as the support band. And I was like, this, would have, this was great. I advanced this tour, and then they, the, the bottom, there was no record label to uh, support it. To, you know, to, you know, hold it up, make it happen. That didn't happen. Then we all went in different directions, and now Bill Cozy mixes them and does a fine job. Yeah, they're, they're, Cheap Trick is one of my all-time favorite bands. We all love them. Uh-huh. You know. um, where uh-huh. can people that want to follow you find you? Facebook? Well, on Facebook. I have two websites that are pretty much inactive. Uh, I mean, it's like, you know, there's like the nightbob.com, which is basically a, a business card um, and uh, for the audio and the things. And then there's right now, there's this uh, Night Bob Archives, which is static right now. But I'm going to start putting some stuff up there to irritate people because I'm at a point in my life where, I, um, where I have, I've accumulated a lot of stuff, right? Yeah. And I think I'm going to just start a lot of stuff. You have no idea, right? And um, I would love to see some of that. That would be fantastic. You know, I mean, what it is, the problem that was I need like an intern or somebody, you know, the, to actual, to do the computer shit for me. Cause I just like, you know, I just like, how do I do this? You know I mean? I want to, I want to put a picture of everybody who ever bought a Night Bob t-shirt and just do that, you know? And it's sort of like, you know, it's like, I've got better things to do than to figure that out. But speaking of that, for those of you, you can go to Rocksteady Records, which is Bren's company, Flip, and he has the Night Bob T-shirt, bringing you the decibels. So there's only a couple of them left. Oh, he's almost out again. I know they sell yeah, out. Yeah, there's only he does it right away. They usually they sell out in a day because what it is, it's the it's the old Shoko logo. Yeah. Every day when I go to get the mail, I think I. I'm going to get a cease and desist from the people who own Choco. <laughs> but if it hasn't happened, then we're not. No, and it'll, it, it will send it to I'll learn that from the, We'll send it wait, to Brent. Check this. Yeah, what, cease and desist? Yeah. Which one, which one of you is the attorney? <laughs> no, I mean, if you get it, well, if you get wait. it, we'll just forward it to Brent. <laughs> Well, no, I, no, I was going to say that the first thing I do is put it up. Yeah, we'd make a shirt out of it, right? Because yeah. um, are you familiar with the band Zebrahead? No. Okay, Zebrahead, Southern California, uh, punk rock band, right? They had a big hit on MTV with a song called "Playmate of the Year." 
right? This is, I, I don't know. I don't remember when it was, late 90s or when there still was an MTV, right? Okay. And so they, were, they, they became huge in Japan off of that song, right? Just like Cheap Trip. Okay. You know, I mean, like, uh, they, they actually knocked, like, you know, Janet Jackson off the top 10 with this song, right? So they have a giant career in Japan and in Europe. And in, in America, people really don't know them very much. And, you know, they work. They, they work every summer. They go to Japan almost every year. They do Europe, every, you know, I'm out now. No one's working, right? But they used to do this thing where they would take corporate logos, right, and change them into zebra head. Right, nice. and they would sell them until they got the cease and desist letter. <laughs> <laughs> That's fantastic. It was, they were really good at it, I must admit. You know, I did a show with them like a year ago. You know, for old times' sake, they're playing in Brooklyn. They're a good band. They had, they had they're kind of like a little bit of everything going on there. You know, that SoCal, you know, Fullerton punk rock thing, and uh, good guys. You know, I mean, they're fun to be with. I did, I did, I did. Uh, you know, Japan, Europe, and some some of America, like almost maybe one of their last American tours, and that was 20 years ago. But, uh, yeah, I'll have to check those guys out, too. Like you said, you've had a fantastic career. Um, yeah. Well, we've we've kept you now here for over an hour, so... Uh, Can we tell some more Chris stories? Yeah, do you, if you got I mean, some... All these Kiss fans can be mad that I didn't talk about Kiss touring. No, so please lay us lay out some Kiss stories for us. We'd love I know. it. Point me in the direction. I don't know what you know. Uh, well, let's start with Fraley's Comet. What's the funniest thing that happened to you when you were on the road with Fraley's Comet? <laughs> um, watching Fraley. Okay, Ace is at the time anyway. Was a was a pool shark. Right, he mm -hmm. he knew how to work. Must be the Bronx thing, you know, because we, we were playing in Raleigh, right? And we were playing in this club. They had, you know, like a pool, a bunch of pool tables, right? And so I'm sitting there, right? And uh, Fraley uh, wants to get on a table and, and gets on a table with this biker, right? And Fraley's point is like really working the, the like I'm incompetent and pretty lit kind of pool player kind of guy right and then and he goes like uh i don't know i guess i'm not just motivated right so he uh I don't know. So, so the biker goes let's put 20 dollars on it right done right so friendly uh, blows the game and then uh he goes maybe it wasn't it's not you know not enough and he puts up 50 he puts down 50 right he blows the game the biker says, like, I'm going to make some dough off of this guy. The biker goes, let's make it 150, right? And Fraley goes, okay. Biker puts the 150 down. He goes, why don't you break? Fraley breaks, clears the table, takes the, takes the money, right? The biker is, like, flabbergasted, right? And he goes, oh, I don't feel so bad. You were just beat by Ace Fraley. He goes, like, you may have gotten your first blowjob you know, uh, you know, while my music was playing in the background. And then him and the biker are like pals, right? You know, it's like, oh, 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 oh. let me show you I know how to levitate a Jack Daniels <laughs> car, right? <laughs> oh, 
But that was that was eighty seven. You know, I mean, it's like I, it, the thing that gets me is like eighty seven. That's like that's thirteen. That's that's like what thirty three years ago. Yeah. And so I think Kiss fans weren't even born then. Oh yeah, it's true. I, I gotta, listen, I gotta tell you something. I'll tell you, and this this is for every Kiss thing, right? They haven't haven't worked for for Kiss and and different versions of Fraley uh, Fraley's bands and stuff like that. Did they have a really uh, a great fan base? You know, yeah. at least in my, you know, I mean, it's like they're, they're for the most part they're very cool, right? And I was at one point, uh, one point doing uh, with with Ace uh, do these meet and greets, right? And these people, they would they would be there and they'd be clutching their stuff and when you know, and they'd go. <laughs> they'd just, they go and sit down next to them, right? And it's like, I always find this really interesting that when, you know, like when a fan gets really close to someone they, you know, who means something or admire or whatever, they say some really weird shit. Let me tell you. And like, you know, like, is that your real hair? You know, <laughs> or stuff like that. And then like they get that, you know, he'd sign and he's, He's really nice to them. Some bands aren't that nice. And he, he actually, sp he spends time with them and he'll sign stuff from them and he'll do small talk and he makes them feel good. And, and we do this thing where we, we take the picture with your camera. There's none of that bullshit like you have to pay money to get the print or any of that. And you, you wait, you use your phone or your camera, take the picture, you get, you know, approval of the photo, yeah. right? And then, and then when they leave, they're like, they float out the door, you know, they're really happy, you know, and happiness is, is, is kind of a, a hard commodity, you know, to, to make some, you know, to make someone happy. If it's, you know, that's kind of what the magic of music is, you know, that, that like for that hour or hour and a half or 40 minutes, you know, kind of lifts you up, makes you forget about, you know, you, you hate your job and, you know, and from, you know, you, there you are, you know, you you're like nine years old again or 12 years old and you're singing along to, uh, to cold gin or something, you know, and, and it's kind of a little bit of, it's like kind of a magic thing, you know, and it's, it's sort of like, obviously it means, you know, I mean, I see this stuff a lot different than most people. Cause I, you know, I work in this industry and you know, you know, all the details, you know, you know that, you know, who's a dick and who's not, you know, and, and, so it's interesting to see that you know, that, that, you know people get happy about something for an hour for a half, you know uh, and forget about their troubles i mean that's kind of like the point isn't it you know that's to lift you up you know? and that's why that's why as us being the ages that we are we still keep going back to concerts kiss and other bands as well as ace because it it takes you back to being a kid again for 90 minutes or two hours and oh, yeah you know, to your point, they uh, always—I I get it. They're great with their fans. They always have been. You know, and I can't you know, always it, say that about everybody else. I don't know, but you know, they seem to have it down. So yeah, you know, I yeah. mean, sometimes you have to. You know, it, it's like that's why I said they—they they have a good fan base. Obviously, it—it it means something. I, there's other bands that they're the same. People, you know. It, it means something to them, you know, and it lifts them up. And it, it, it's, it's like a reason to, you know, to get through the day. And that's yeah. nice to be able to do something like that and, and see, see happy people, you know, I mean, like. 
<laughs> We've been blessed. I did a tour with Limp Biscuit. Nobody was happy. Nobody. <laughs> <laughs> I was really unhappy. <laughs> oh, that, that, that sounds awful. Well, and, you know, we that get was, that. That was the first time. That was the first time that I realized that the culture had taken a deep left turn, and I'd taken a right turn because I didn't get it at all. Yeah. Right. I'm not. A, I, I was never a fan, you know. But that's why I like. Well, I, will, I will tell you this: the uh, the, <laughs> the singer once said to me, "He goes, a monkey could mix this band, right?" And then we had, had we had a uh, uh, a little battle about delay, right? And uh, he fired me in the <laughs> after the first song, right? And I said, I thought I turned to the system engineer and I go like, "Wow, I'm done with you know like a." I guess I can go, right? You know, like, uh, you know, uh, he goes like, he just fired you. I go, yeah, I know. And I got a tape running this. I'll, I'll be able to use this tape really well, right? And uh, he goes like, what are you going to do? And I go, I guess I could turn the PA off and walk away. I go, but that'd be kind of unprofessional. I go, there's a point in this show when he comes out to front of the house and he works on the console. I go, maybe I'll take him out with a mic stand when he comes, you know, when he comes out, because he did, he'd come out there and stand on the console and rah, 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 rah. he came there and I was like, come on, come yeah. on. Yeah. <laughs> anyway, he turned around and went back, right? So I was like, fuck this, right? So after the show, I finished the show because I'm a pro guy, right? You know, I, I have yeah. a, you know, so every, as I was going backstage, everybody's going, don't go in the dressing room, don't go in the dressing room. And they're like, when this went down, I got on my phone and I got myself another gig, right? I was like, Fuck this and fuck this band and fuck everybody, you know. And I called Enterprise, come get me, you know. And I got a car, and this was in uh, Phoenix, Phoenix, Arizona, I guess, right? And their next, uh, I got in a car and I drove to Tucson and started working on a uh, Emmy Lou. Ha I was going to work on an Emmy Lou Harris record with, uh, you know, as an engineer, right? And uh, and all of a sudden, you know, the, the phones were lighting up, you know, where are you? We're, we're ready to leave. And I go, don't you remember? I got fired. They go, where are you? I go, I'm in Tucson. I got another gig, right? And uh, and then the singer goes like, it's our big LA show. And I go, you told me a monkey could mix this band. Well, why don't you get a monkey from LA to do your big LA show, right? Hang up the phone. Next thing is the fucking manager is on the phone going, we'll double your salary. I'm like, no, I'm not coming back. Right? I got a great gig here. You know, and he goes like, we'll triple your salary. And I go, all right, tell him to wait. All right, it'll be an hour, it'll be about a two-hour ride. Should have just driven down away, though, you know, but uh, huh, whatever. I knew I was done. You know, when you, when you do pull a shenanigans like that, you're, you're pretty much, your, your career with that band is over, you know, when you toast them yeah. for money well, and their, their career is over so that doesn't surprise me yeah, dude, they're still working you know. they're still you have a hit you'll work forever they're, they're, i was looking at something yeah, from last year where they're headlining like a you know one night of a three-night um you know rock fest of boring bands or something yes. you know it's the rock fest in in cadat uh, wisconsin of course wisconsin no those the main thing Oh, I shouldn't have said that. You guys played there a couple of years ago, so. I know. Didn't yeah. we hang out in catering or something? Yeah, you, you and me and PJ. Right, and then uh, that was the one with Brett Michaels. Or, uh, a bit of bit. Uh, Brett Michaels and Michael Ford and all that. Uh, 
could that be. kind of stuff. Yeah, that's, it was all 80s that yeah. night. That's all I remember, you know. All 80s. All 80s yeah. night. I do this at least once. So if Bryn watches this, I have this thing where I just, I fill up the screen with my eyeball. It's like a trademark. <laughs> so you made Bryn happy. There you go. <laughs> yeah, well, he won't watch this. You know? yeah, he, he knew I was doing it. He will. He always does. Because he's always critiquing me and telling me what I'm doing wrong. Uh, you know, he's bored. He sits at home. Well, Bob, thank you. <laughs> Bob, thank you so much for coming on. We well, so appreciate I, it. This was fantastic. I hope I was, enter I hope I was entertained. Oh, you oh, were. Are you kidding me? Those you stories are. are amazing. You were brutally honest. And we love yeah, that. It's all about honesty. You know, you don't, you know, it, it just, it moves things forward. You know, if you tell the truth, yep. what did you think? I thought it was crap. You know, I mean, it was, it was like, you know, it's like one of my favorite Paul Stanley quotes, right? It's like, you no, know, Mick, but this is during, you know, in Europe, right? We're playing, you know, they're playing. I don't know where Stanley is, right? And I'm like, you know, so I'm pushing Kulik, right? And, uh, and all of a sudden behind me, he taps on my shoulder, taps me on the shoulder and goes, It'd be really nice if my guitar was in the PA. And I went like, how do you know? And I said, oh, fuck, I shouldn't have said that, you know. Uh, and and <laughs> honesty can really hurt sometimes. It was like, and once in the dressing room, Gene goes, which one of my basses sounds the best? And I go, they all sound good. He goes, explain. I go, you can make any bass sound like junk. I was like, oh, I shouldn't have said that either. Because you know? at that time, I mean, like, they were working hard. I get it. Listen, I got to tell you, they were, you know, even, uh, you know, uh, to me, that they were, just, they, were, they were really, I thought they really worked hard. But they would run around, you know, and they had Gary off stage, right? And he would, he would kind of double some of their parts. Right. So, so the band sounded big and fat and all that, you know, like you used to go like this, this hand is Paul Stanley. This hand is Gene Simmons, you know, so they could go out and be rampaging rock and roll gods and the music wouldn't suffer. You know, that, uh, I enjoyed my time with them and I have a lot of respect for them, you know, so uh, I guess that'd be, you know, I have a lot, you know, I have a lot of respect for Aerosmith too. For anybody who you know can who anybody who can hold up a career in the music business for like forty or fifty years, right? Uh, is, that's quite a some kind of respect, you know. Mm -hmm. Even if they turn into something you don't like, you know. I mean, there's various reasons for that. You know? Right. It's well, like, yeah, I, I can't criticize. I'm just disappointed. But that's the thing about cheap trick, though, Night Bob, <laughs> is they are exactly how they were in the beginning. They they don't think disappoint. So? I think so. Think yeah, so? at least from my perspective. How about that Rebel Rebel cover? I haven't heard that. Really? No. I thought that was like a record store day thing or something. Yeah, they it was, cover just, Rebel, it was, Rebel it was just released like two weeks ago. Yeah. yeah, I haven't heard. I haven't heard it yet. Some cheap trick fan you are. Really, Tommy? <laughs> oh, I've been Tommy, exposed. How could you? You should have lied. I've been exposed. Yes. No, I have to pick that up. <laughs> Oh. oh, the shame. The shame. Oh, there you go. Brutal honesty. Bob, Bob again, 
this this was this was amazing. Your story. You got to write a book. Yeah. Yeah. You know what? Let me tell you. Listen, you're not the first person to say that, right? And uh, the problem with books, right? If you go, a it's it's like it's a lot of work for zero money, right? And book publishers make record companies look like geniuses. I shopped a book around 2001, right? And this is interesting, actually. And my book was really interesting because it had, had technical stuff, had, you know, culture stuff and all this, right? So I'm in this really big publisher's office in New York City, and they go, because I wrote, I wrote a, a book on, uh, on microphones for another publisher, right? And once you have a published book, you, you jump to the head of the class, right? Okay. You don't have to do a sample chapter or anything like that. So, but I gave them, I gave them some stuff and they go, in this genre, the best-selling book is the, is the dirt. And we think you need to ramp up the sex and drugs in your book in a right. microphone book <laughs> no 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 this is that no i was doing uh, it oh, was yours. Uh, okay <laughs> just yeah, like it was, it was at the time it was called over the top right the book right yeah and um and i said and i went like they go you know so we you need to ramp up to sex and drugs and i go listen let me tell you something i go that motley crew book that's four guys in a band talking shit about each other right yeah that's fine and well because there was an ulterior motive to them doing that, right? Because that makes them seem more badass than, than they were. Uh, if I talk shit about all these people I worked with, right? A lot of, most of them are still alive and most of them are still very successful and they have floors full of lawyers, right? Just willing to crush me like a bug, right? Mm-hmm. So, and also books are static. Once, once they go to press, there's no changing anything, right? So I started doing more things like this where, where I, can, you know, I can tell a story, right? I can modify that story, right? You know, I could go deeper. I could stay away from touchy things like, the, like, like the, let's just say the great Aerosmith Hamburg incident, right? which is where my fist, your nose, actually my fist, your chin, right? Uh, but um, so I... I I do a lot. Of, I do a lot of podcasts, right? Uh, I do a lot of live things. I've done live, you know, uh, you know where you know where you have an audience, and that's even better because I really go nuts then because you get into the performance aspect of thing, and you can, you you know, like I said to you, what do you want to know? And I'll tell you, you know, you what you know, and sometimes I will go. I really don't want to talk about that. I don't want to talk about, you know. Uh, drug issues or something. I did an interview uh, with this one guy where all he wanted to talk about was sex and drugs, right? And uh, I was like, it's all urban legend. It wasn't like that. And he was so disappointed. He completely blew his interview. He didn't know what to do at that point because all he thought was he was going to have 45 minutes of stories about, you know, girls and drugs and drug dealers and death and destruction and wrecked hotel rooms and TVs out the windows and, and all that shit. And I was like, dude, that's urban legend. You got to pay for that stuff. You know, it's like it, you play, you pay. I smashed up a hotel room once. 
Yeah, and I had to pay for a lamp and, a, and the bathroom door, right? And it came to $39, I remember, because it was in Eugene, Oregon, right? And <laughs> I was like, wow, that stuff's really cheap. Nowadays, you smash something up, it costs you thousands of dollars, you know? So, you know, because you don't see that. You know, those activities don't happen anymore. You know, it just doesn't happen. But uh, I don't know. You know, I mean, like the book exists, but you know, the running joke was that there, there was a version of this book that I was not going to put out until I passed away. When I tell the real truth, where the bodies are, where the bodies right. are buried, and all that kind of shit. So, but I, I want to keep living. I there still want to make. I still want to make shows. You know, yeah, I want to make shows. You, you still want to work. If you write that book, you well, won't no, be working. I don't, I don't need, yeah. See, listen, I learned a long time ago that if you're going to be in the entertainment business, you have to have multiple revenue streams, right? So um, I've always, you know, and it's funny because it's like I'm pretty well known for having a, a lot of side hustles, you know, that I do. I do stuff for musical instrument manufacturers and I, I test stuff out and uh, I'm very knowledgeable about all kind of gear and all kind of how to make how you make records and uh, and how you know like people still make records you know what i mean uh, it's like and how how do you get things done i used to be known as the uh oh what's his name uh, i could get i could make a record for ten thousand bucks i know how to make a record that that's 10 songs ten thousand dollars ready to go I was like the Roger Corman of punk rock in New York in the early 90s. You want records? I can make a record. Get up 10 grand and we'll have it. And that includes me. Includes, you know, my pay. Right. Just ha just, just wait. You just have to have a well-rehearsed band in a, in, a, in a finite hole and know how to use the technology to make it happen really quick. But um, thanks for inviting me. Yeah, thank you so much, Bob. I, you know, I, I apologize. Mark and Tommy ran into internet connections. That's why they disappeared. Well, Bob, once some, again, some good questions. Th thank you so much. Um, we appreciate you taking time out of your day to sit down with us. <laughs> Man, what, what a bunch of stories Bob has. Uh, you know, and, and like I said, his brutal honesty. I love that. I, you know, it was just, he's not afraid to say what he thought of a band, which is great. I mean, that, that line, kiss, they went over like bowling pins. <laughs> <laughs> That is the name of this week's show. I know it is. It is. And then yeah. and then then talking about Aerosmith. Fuck this and fuck them. Fuck them. <laughs> it's just like I love that. It's just brutal I, honesty. But yet he goes on to work with both of these bands for years. Yeah. But see, it, it, that's kind of the discussion that I've had with so many of these different people is look. I don't care if it's Gene and Paul or Tommy, Eric, Ace, whoever, they can smell bullshit a mile away. And so if you're full of crap, they're going to know it because they're around so many people. So there's, you never have anything to lose if you're genuinely honest and just yep. tell people what you think. Yep. You know, exactly. Exactly. They, exactly. they don't want to be placated to want to hear the truth because then they know that they can trust you because you get, you, you earn their respect. And I knew that Night Bob would have great stories. I just knew it. And I, I would love to see the collection of stuff he's accumulated over his oh, career. I bet it's unbelievable. I mean, Mark yeah. was Mark would be like, uh, one it all. Yeah. Oh God. Yeah. He. Yeah. Exactly. Mark and Mark would be the guy. Yep. You know. Yep. So I hope he does. So uh, for homework this week, guys. Uh, 
you know, how many of you guys have met and talked to Night Bob before? Now you know who to go talk to at the Ace shows because he's sitting there at the board yep. and he's super nice and he's very approachable and he's easy to talk to. Yeah. Yeah. Ask him to ask him to tell you some more about the Ace Fraley pool shark story. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. You know, and levitating Jack Daniels bottle. Yep. Yeah, exactly. Like that. Exactly. Yeah. Um, yeah, I, I, I thoroughly enjoyed it. I mean, he's got the, he's the type of guy who needs to like be in a, a live setting with an audience of a few hundred people and just one moderator sitting on a chair next to him and then just talking and just let him go. Just let him go. Okay. You're back. Okay. Yeah. So there's your homework guys. Yep. So if you are watching us on YouTube, hit that subscribe button. If you're listening on Spotify, follow us. If you're on iTunes, subscribe, leave us a review and a rating. We greatly appreciate all of that. And uh, that's it. We're out of here this week. We mm -hmm. will be back next week. We do have a guest. I just don't know who it is off the top of my head, but we got a lot of guests lined up. And if it's Tuesday right now and you guys are watching this earlier in the afternoon or you're listening to it on Monday night, get out and vote. Oh, yes. By all means, just vote. That's all you got to do. Just go vote. It's your God-given right as an American to vote. So freaking use it. Get out yep. there and vote. Yep, exactly, exactly. All right, that's it. We'll see everybody next week. So you love the show. Go to itunes.threesidesofthecoin.com and leave your review and rating of Three Sides of the Coin. Thanks. So you love the show. Go to itunes.threesidesofthecoin.com and leave your review and rating of Three Sides of the Coin. Thanks.